We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on the intersection between Judaism and pop culture, how our faith helps us appreciate what we watch and listen to, and how pop culture impacts our understanding of Jewish tradition. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we're talking about the new Hulu miniseries, Pistol, based on the formation of the Sex Pistols. Mike, you are a big punk rock fan, a fan of the Sex Pistols. What can you tell us about this show? Yeah, uh, I was very excited when I heard about this show dropping. It is, um, like you said, a uh, an exploration of the uh, rise and fall of the Sex Pistols, the iconic uh, 19, late 1970s punk rock band from, from uh, the UK uh, with uh, memorable songs like God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK, uh, fronted by the iconic Johnny Rotten and John Lydon, uh, and uh, probably maybe even the more famous member of the band, although a latecomer to the band, uh, is uh, Sid Vicious, not his real name, uh, who uh, is... Uh, Wait, uh, that's not his real name. Not his real name. Uh, this is a, a factoid uh, brought about by the show, or at least suggested by the show. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but he takes his name uh, apparently from uh, from John Lydon's uh, pet hamster uh named Sid um uh, Sid Vicious's real name is uh John Simon something and he has to take the he has to Johnny Rotten makes him take a new name because there can't be two Johns in the band uh and uh and Simon uh he thinks is not punk rock enough so uh he names himself after John Lydon's hamster Sid who bites him and uh when he bites him he says oh Sid is vicious and Johnny Rotten in the show at least says, yes, that's going to be your name, Sid Vicious. Anyway, Sid Vicious uh, is sort of more infamous, uh, not a particularly talented musician, uh, gets embroiled in uh, drugs and with a uh, uh, with a woman uh, that is um, uh, sort of reviled by the band, has sort of a kind of you know, uh, Yoko, ono, Yoko Ono legend around her. Uh, I don't know how, you know, how much of it is true or apocryphal, just as when we talked about the Beatles uh, a few months ago, uh, a lot of uh, what was said about Yoko Ono uh, may or may not have actually been true, but at least in this case, Nancy Spungen, uh is, um, you know, uh, embroils uh, along with Sid Vicious in the world of drugs, especially heroin and amphetamines. Uh, Nancy is eventually uh, brutally murdered in New York. Uh, Sid Vicious becomes the uh, primary suspect for her murder. Um, 
also a very kind of mysterious aspect of the story, which is uh, covered in the last episode of the show. But the band uh, is has a meteoric rise. Uh, they don't invent punk, punk rock, although the show uh, seems to depict them in some ways as inventing punk rock. They don't invent punk rock, but they do capture a lot of the spirit and sound uh, and look that becomes identified with punk rock in the in the late 70s. Uh, and uh, the show is really, in many ways, the brainchild of the director, Danny Boyle, of uh, Train Spotting fame and Slumdog Millionaire. It definitely has the look and feel of uh, Danny Boyle joint. He's directed a lot of the episodes. Uh, and it uh, is really told through the, uh, through the frame of uh, one of the founding members of the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones, uh, who becomes the guitarist, starts as the lead singer, but becomes pretty quickly the guitarist of, of the band. Uh, and, uh, and it's based off of his uh, memoir uh, of, uh, of his life in, in the Sex Pistols. So it's really told from his perspective, which is a unique take, I think, on the, on the story, uh, not necessarily the same as you would get in, uh, in, in a documentary, and which, which um, uh, they, there have been documentaries about the Sex Pistols, most notably uh, one uh, from about 10 years ago uh, or so, 15 years ago, called The Filth and the Fury which is uh, taken from a headline about the Sex Pistols uh, when they started to uh, hit big in, in the UK. Uh, anyway, the show really kind of explores how, uh, first of all, it's a, you know, a sort of behind the music rise and fall of, of a band. Um, it explores the dynamics of the band, uh, the creation of the band, which was uh, perhaps more contrived than most people imagine, uh, but also the the incredible power that music has to uh, to to affect change and start movements. We talked about this a little bit uh, a few months ago. Again, when we talked about the Beatles, the Beatles are kind of you know a punching bag for the Sex Pistols uh, because they see rock and roll as having become a kind of another means of of kind of corporate and governmental control. Um, and, uh, and so this is a, an attempt to start a new musical movement that is going to, you know, be like a bomb that goes off in the status quo and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and really kind of transforms society. So that's really what the show is about and, and what it explores. I know, uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, especially as a teenager, as a, a pretty big punk rock fan, uh, I uh, really identified a lot with the uh, music, the message, the look of bands like the Sex Pistols. So I watched the show. I felt very seen by the show. This like really kind of you know brought me back to uh, a, a nostalgic time in in my life. Um, Jesse, I know that you are not a huge punk rock fan. Uh, and not a huge fan of shows with a lot of British people in the first place. So, uh, what have you it's thought? The accents, it's the British the accents. accents, and they're they, these. This is a very British show um, uh, with that that I need to watch with subtitles. So, you know, you're you're, you're not alone. Um, I, I'm you know more of a fan of sort of pop punk. You know, like I, I did like the Ramones. I I, I was into the sort of late '90s uh, pop punk, like Less Than Jake, that sort of thing. Um, I was more into ska punk, uh, Real Big Fish, Muddy Muddy Boston's, but not this this sort of um, early rise of, of punk rock where Sex Pistols, whether they are are truly 
the founders of punk rock and there's certainly it's attributed to them. Um, I think the show is fine. Um, I find two things most interesting. One, I don't know much about the history. I The only name of the Sex Pistols that I knew was Sid Vicious. And so it was actually quite surprising to me that he was not the person who started the band. He, he came in late as a friend of a friend and he became the face of the band. Um, and Steve Jones, you know, is a name that I don't know. So I have to assume he sort of took a back seat compared to somebody like the lead singer, like Sid Vicious. It reminded me a little bit of that thing you do. Um, oh, Sid Vicious, by the way, doesn't become the lead singer until uh, pretty late in the game uh, after Johnny Rotten uh, is uh, leaves and uh, and and uh, the manager, uh, Malcolm, uh, experiments with Sid as the lead singer. Um, uh, but for the most part, Sid Vicious plays the bass and not very well. Uh, he spends most of his time uh, actually unplugged uh, uh, in, in concerts. And so most of the bass sound that you get on their, you know, one uh, studio album, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, um, is really the original bassist, Glenn, uh, who's pushed out of the band for being not quite uh, a good fit for the look and feel that they for were the, going the, for. For the look and feel, right? So that that's that's the thing that I think stood out to me the most um, is, as you mentioned, how contrived it seemed that look and feel was, right? They present themselves as trying to be countercultural, um, but it, it, it seems that it was a bit of an act, right? You and I talked before we started recording, how is that any different than in sync? where they all had to wear their tight jean jackets and, 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 you know, had their frosted tips and spiked hair. And it was a, a boy band look. This was a look. It's not that they, they were all countercultural and they came together, but this was a look that their manager sort of created for them to present this option and opportunity uh, for them. Right. That's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question about whether, the you know a band like the Sex Pistols that is you know really organized uh, and and contrived uh, from the from the vision of their of their manager Malcolm, um, you know are they different from from an InSync or Backstreet Boys? Uh, I think that the you know one of the primary differences I guess is that the the Sex Pistols were supposed to stand for something. You know they were supposed to um, there there was a a, a, a social cause that they were meant to be advancing, um, you know, which is kind of summed up by their, what became their, you know, catchphrase, you know, get pissed, destroy, right? Or their, um, uh, one of their most famous songs, Anarchy in the UK, right? That they, you know, that their, that their idea was to kind of, you know, shake up the, you know, regressive and repressive, you know, uh, almost in some ways fascistic, you know, post-war status quo of, of England and really, you know, of the, of, of the Western world, you know, that was, you know, very uh, uh, conformist, very corporate. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, and, and the show definitely depicts this, that they were, you know, that they wanted to make money. Uh, and, uh, and so it was not just a, a, a you know, an attempt to uh, to uh, this altruistic cause of, you know, of, of blowing up the status quo. Um, they wanted to blow up the status quo and make a profit doing it, uh, you know. So um, it's, it's hard to kind of suss out, okay, you know, what is the, uh, what's, the, what's the pure 
And that's the that's the sense of about punk rock. I I once went to a, a, the store in Atlanta that was you know kind of where I did my punk rock shopping, um, which is already kind of a a, a strange um, irony. There's another irony, of course. You know, and I said that the Sex Pistols de did define uh, a lot of the uh, look about what you know punk rock kind of looked like uh that was in large part this is something i also didn't know that was due to the fashion designer still active fashion designer fashion revolutionary vivian westwood uh, my wife <laughs> uh, pointed that out to me um that uh, uh that you know so there 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 is an irony in punk rock too that's something that is about non-conformity and you know smashing uh you know smashing the status quo has you know a look and a feel a musical style that's neat and tidy and ordered enough to be considered its own genre uh you know that that's it's it's so strange in a way and so ironic in in a way um and so you know can there be something that is truly countercultural so countercultural uh that um you know that it can't be a movement at all because once you're a movement, you already have a culture. So that's an interesting thing. But I, I was in this. But uh, it's what happens when the countercultural becomes uh, mainstream, right? Which, which it's when they you know, sell out to an extent, right? Exactly. You know, you talk about uh, um, less than Jake or, or Real Big Fish. It was Real Big uh, Fish. Real Big Fish has you know song in the in the late. The record 90s, company is going to give me lots of money, and everything's going to be all right. Right. You know, at it and and the irony, of course, of that song is that Real Big Fish was you know a, a pretty clear example of a of punk rock sellout. Um, but you know, I went to the store in Atlanta. Where I'd buy a lot of my punk rock clothes called the Junk Man's Daughter in Little Five Point in Atlanta. I'm not sure if it's still there. It might be. Uh, and there was a shirt with, uh, with, with Sid Vicious on it. And, uh, and I was thinking about buying it, but I, you know, I don't think I had enough money on me that day or whatever. Uh, and so I, I, you know, went to the, the guy at the store. I'm like, I'm like, is it, you know, do you think that like, if I came back next week, that the shirt would still be here? He's like, oh yeah, they're, they're going to keep making that shirt. You know, uh, as long as punk's profitable, punk's not dead. Right. And and that's really the truth. Right. That uh, that that punk rock survives because it's profitable. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're still cranking, you know, Vans is still cranking out warp tours and people are, you know, selling out uh, amphitheaters uh, to, to go to the Vans warp tour. Um, you know, people are people are buying, you know, punk rock albums and punk rock music today. Um, so as long as punk's profitable, punk's not dead. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that this show does in a way highlight that kind of central tension to punk rock that it's you know that it's about you know the music of, it's the music of the disaffected the music of the outsider the music of the counterculture uh but it becomes its own culture it becomes a you know a, a money maker i mean how do you square that tension you know looking at this with our, our rabbi uh keep us on um i i think a lot about what does this mean for Jewish community and the American Jewish community? Um, there was a, a Pew study that came out uh, uh, about a decade ago that said that uh, boomers uh, or that millennials are significantly more spiritual than boomers, but that they are um, uh, the more um, disturbed or uh, they don't trust organized religion. Uh, right, so that they uh, lack affiliation way more, even though they identify more as spiritual. And so as a result, you have the rise 
um, the turn of the, the millennium, you, you have the rise of the sort of independent minion movement, um, that sort of thing, this idea that uh, institutions um, are, you know, people are jaded by institutions, by synagogues that have a rich history, uh, by the, the formal nature of, of synagogues, mostly because of experiences people had maybe growing up in Hebrew school or something like that. And so Judaism is important to them or faith is important to them, but they wanted to look different than the Judaism that they grew up in. But then what happens when those become the, the, um, talk of the town, right? When the, the Hadars or the Ikars or something like that uh, become um, the examples of what Jewish community should be. And then they're no longer countercultural, but they are almost status quo and what people strive to be. Right. I mean, and, and not only that they become the talk of the town and, uh, you know, models that others seek to emulate, uh, but that they themselves become institutions, right? I mean, you know, Hadar, um, you know, now has a yeshiva uh, and, you know, is, um, is turning out educational materials for kids. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's flagship minion uh, is, you know, is, is now multi-generational, right? You know, all the people that started Hadar, you know, as, as young singles and young couples in, in, uh, you know, the Upper West Side of New York, you know, now have kids of their own. Uh, and, um, you know, it, and so, uh, so, you know, is there something that really differentiates a, you know, Kihilat uh, Hadar from your average synagogue, you know, other than the fact that, you know, it's, it's an upstart, it, it, you know, may not have its own building, whatever, although now Kihilat Hadar is meeting in a synagogue building, right? So, uh, so, so, you know, what's, what's so substantially different? I mean, at, you know, Ikar, I think is, is like this too. I mean, Ikar, uh, and that was my, that is my shul in a lot of ways. Um, uh, you know, Sharon Browse is my rabbi in, in a lot of ways. So I, and I mean this in no way, you know, to, uh, to minimize her brilliance and, and accomplishments, um, but, you know, Ikar might say that it's not a shul, um, but, you know, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and, uh, and, and, and acts like a duck, you know, it, it, it's a duck, right? And, and it's only because synagogue had ne negative connotations, right? So uh, you, you redefine yourself or, or you reclassify yourself as a spiritual community or something like that. Um, but I think the goals are the same. It's just you have the benefit of being an upstart, of being something new, that you don't carry the weight and baggage of a synagogue that has decades of history. Right. Uh, and, you know, and I think that there, there is, I mean, you know, Ikar, I think, you know, one of the things that, that you know, maybe gravitate to Ikar, I don't know if, if Rabbi Browse would, uh, would, would express it quite this way, but it did have that kind of punk rock spirit. Of you know shaking up the mainstream and uh, and and really you know making a sending a message to the establishment about you know what spiritual community could be and what uh, and and what you know younger people especially wanted out of uh, you know spiritual life today you know there is a, a sense uh, in. Uh, you know, and you see this in, in Pistol, that punk rock is, you know, if it's about anything, it's about, you know, rejecting what your parents stood for um, and, and, you know, trying to differentiate yourself from your parents' generation, which is one of the reasons why, you know, Glenn is kind of pushed out of the band because he, you know, he has this, he has a, uh, um, 
he, he doesn't have the same look and feel because he has a you know stable he comes from a stable family life uh and you know steve jones doesn't he's disaffected steve jones kind of represents this you know um i i have something to rebel against from my my parents you know i uh you know had a stepfather that was abusive and continues to be abusive um you know and i you know was not wanted as a kid well i'm gonna you know as an adult i'm gonna you know send a big middle finger to all of that um it reminds me of that scene at the end of eight mile right where um where uh, B Rabbit, Eminem's character, ends up calling out actually a young Anthony Mackie, uh, who, who plays Papa Doc, who he's rivaling um, in, in the final battle. Which Mike, I believe we saw that together. Yeah, uh, when it came out, and he calls him out for saying Clarence, you know, goes to a private school, right, and right. you know his parents. A Cranford, have a, man, that's a private Cran- Cranbrook, 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 and, and his parents have a really good marriage and, and that sort of thing. Right, and, and it's like you uh, if you fit into a certain mold then you can't break out of that mold and create a new mold that is is different and distinct um but what does that say for you and i who are trying to build spiritual communities uh within synagogues that have rich histories uh right there are hundreds and hundreds of synagogues within our own movement within the conservative movement uh, let alone those outside of that movement that are trying to do that. Uh, and then you have these places like Ikar that are saying, okay, the movement has baggage. We're not going to be tied down to a movement or denomination. We're going to do our own thing. Right. So, you know, I, I when I, uh, I, I read a book once called uh, How to Change Your Church Without Killing It. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that there has to be a book uh, with that title shows how hard it is to change um, legacy institutions. Uh, you know, that I think there's something to be said for the model of like the Sex Pistols, you know, to say that like, we, we're not gonna change uh, England or the world without blowing some things up first, right? Metaphorically, of course, but uh, but without blowing things up, right? So, so and, and you and I, I think could, could both attest to the, to the incredible difficulty it is, uh, there is to in, in changing legacy institutions um, without blowing them up. Or without just starting your own thing that, you know, kind of does send that middle finger to the legacy institutions, to the status quo, says we're going to we're going to stake out our place as something different, something for somebody else that's not coming to your building. But I think that that spirit is very much present in Judaism in the first place. Right. You know, uh, our founding the founding father of Judaism um, is someone who is called by God to say, Lech lecha me'artzecha mi'moladetecha mi'beit avicha, right? Like, leave where you're from, leave, your, reject your father, right? Re- reject the, the people that came before you, break away from them, right? The Midrash imagines Abraham as being literally iconoclastic. Right. He there's that famous midrash of Abraham going to his father's idol shop and smashing all the idols. Right. And that's the model that we're called to hold out uh, as the as what what Judaism is supposed to represent in some ways. The the, the way of being Jewish in the world is to um, is to look with a, a critical eye at your at your kind of spiritual inheritance uh, and say, you know, uh, there, I, I, there's idolatry there uh, that I need to be very wary of and and break down if I'm going to actually fulfill my my calling, my spiritual calling in the world. 
And I would add to that, right, that's, and, and I want to throw this out there and see what you think. You know, the truth is the Judaism that we practice today, the rabbinic Judaism that's rooted in Torah, but is very much not a Torah religion, it's a rabbinic religion, um, was really cultivated and developed um, during 2000 year period of exile. Uh, and it was really a Judaism that was very much meant to be countercultural. It was how do we live as a minority? How do we live as an outsider? How do we live under somebody else's sovereign rule? That sort of thing. So much so that um, there, there's been debate of what does Judaism look like in Israel, right? What does Jewish practice and Jewish ritual and halakha look like if you were to live in a place where you are the majority, where Judaism is everywhere and everything, where Judaism is no longer countercultural, but it is the norm and the expectation and the assumption. Um, personally, as much as I, I connect to the, the idea of Israel, that sort of thing, my Judaism thrives living in the diaspora um, because I think it's an important reminder um, to be a, as a minority um, that we are different and that m- so many around us are not like us uh, and think differently, practice differently, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I, mean, there, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's something uh, really charming and uh, fun um, about, you know, being in Israel in the fall and, you know, the signs and all the shops are, you know, the, the New Year's sale, right? And, uh, and, and you know, the, the commercials are on TV wishing you a Shana Tova in, in September, right? Um, that's, that's you, you know, Hanukkah time, you know, jelly donuts and all the, sh- and all the cafes. There's, there's something really beautiful and charming about that. But at the same time, I feel the same way that, uh, that to me, you know, so much of, uh, of, of, the meaning I find in Judaism is the consciousness with which I have to be Jewish in America, especially in a place like Richmond, Virginia, where I'm very much the minority. Um, my, my Judaism does have to exist in opposition to the dominant culture. And I have to make deliberate and thoughtful choices um, about how I'm going to you know, practice my you know, spiritual calling uh, in in a world that's not set up for me to to do that, you know, I, I, I you know my kids go to my older two kids go to public school here in Richmond, right? You know, uh, they are now getting to an age where uh, where uh, you know it's it's a real conversation um, about you know uh, they missed school the other day for the second day of Shavuot, right? Uh, and and now it's a challenge for the, especially my my eldest, who, who our listeners know from our conversation about uh, turning red, right? Uh, she, you know, she she she's like missing work and tests and things like that when she has to stay home for a holiday, right? So that's that's the challenge of of being an outsider um, and trying to hold on to you know what makes you special and to your own kind of uh, way of life, um, swimming against the 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 tide of the of the surrounding culture. You know, I go to a grocery store, I have to think about what I buy, right? And when I go to Israel, I might not, I mean, I might think about, you know, what I feel like eating today, but, uh, but uh, you know, I don't have to think about is this, uh, is this item kosher or not? So, I mean, it's a really interesting question. If Judaism is meant to uh, an extent be countercultural, 
um, right? There, there's a reason that that the Hasidim, right, very much like wear a certain attire um, that is meant to look different and distinct um, from uh, what is the norm. Um, you and I are, are doing this podcast where we believe actually that society influences religion and religion influences society. Uh, we believe in this idea of um, finding our place within culture and society and Judaism, um, similar to what the Haskalah movement was, right? Mm-hmm. That That's to be, um, to, to understand, appreciate Judaism more. Um, we actually should, um, um, associate with uh, culture and, and be a part of culture and society. It's it's what Solomon Schechter said when he told Louis Finkelstein that to be in a successful rabbi in America, you need to know the game of baseball um, because it was the idea that baseball was America's pastime. And to be an American rabbi for American Jews, you need to talk about what America is. Uh, and so um, it's partially because we are big nerds and we love movies and TV and music and, and uh, whatnot. Um, but it's also because, right, uh, how do you uh, how how do you connect Torah to uh, our communities and, and to Jewish community if you can't also talk about um, what they are consuming on TV and in cinemas and what books they're reading, uh, etc. Yeah, you know, I, this this whole conversation makes me think about something we, we mentioned, uh, Rabbi Sharon Browse before. You know, she gave a. Uh, a, a a, a really memorable sermon a couple of years ago uh, taught reflecting on the meaning of Ikar. I want to share a little bit of that, if, if you don't mind, um, because I think it, it really gets to the core of what we're saying here. You know, he, she says, you know, as, as we built our community over the past decade, I've had the chance to talk to thousands of people who would have self-identified as non-religious Jews or Jews of no religion had they answered the phone when the Pew researchers called. Here's what I've learned from predominantly young, decidedly unaffiliated, religiously disconnected Jews. I have not yet heard one who rejects the idea of powering down once a week in order to step out of the world as it is and imagine the world as it could be. No one marginalized or ambivalent Jew I've spoken with has resisted the wisdom of changing her rhythm in order to reconnect with her most audacious dreams, realign with her priorities, and spend time with the people she loves the most. In other words, I've yet to meet an unaffiliated, disconnected Jew who fundamentally rejects the idea of Shabbat. I've shared with hundreds of Jews of no religion the spiritual practice of waking up each morning with words of gratitude on our lips. Not one has rejected the idea. I'm going to skip a little bit. I've davened with many so-called Jews of no religion. What I've seen is real prayer, even despite all the ambivalence, cynicism, and doubt. Uh, Even those who wish we served bacon, maple, donuts, a kiddish. And I know quite a few of you do not reject the idea that when we eat mindfully, we can bring holiness into an otherwise mundane act. Uh, She goes on to say... uh, that uh, if they are not rejecting the core elements of Jewish religious life, Shabbat, Kashrut, community, prayer, ritual, gratitude, forgiveness, holiness, God, what then are a quarter to a third of American Jews opposing when they disavow connection to the Jewish religion? To answer this, I turn to a Benedictine monk, David Steindl Rast, who explains better than anyone I know what is broken at the heart of organized religion. Religion, he says, is like an, an erupting volcano the lava flowing down the sides of the mountain, fiery, powerful, dangerous, gushing forth red hot from the depths of mystical consciousness. But the stream of lava quickly cools off. A couple hundred years passed, and what was once alive is now dead rock, devoid of all traces of life. 
Doctrine becomes doctrinaire. Morals become moralistic. Ritual becomes ritualistic. All are layers of ash deposits in volcanic rock that separate us from the fiery magma deep down below. Every religion he claims begins with a powerful mystical insight. But over time, the container of religion, because you can touch it and mold it and compulsively ruminate over it and argue about it, begins to obscure the very core it was designed to preserve. When that happens, rather than give people access to profound spiritual and religious inspiration, the container itself becomes an obstacle to inspiration. In Steinle Rast's language, this is how religion left to itself turns irreligious. So I, I love that. Wow. Image. Yeah, it's so powerful. I love that image of, you know, at, at the core of religion is this fire, um, but you don't feel that fire when you go to most synagogues, right? That it's, it's, it's stayed. Well, it's interesting, right? Also most synagogues, most, uh, you know, American synagogues, uh, I would say, especially non-Orthodox synagogues that were founded in the, in the forties or fifties, something like that, um, wanted to mirror themselves off of suburban churches. And I don't mean that in a negative sense based on ritual, right? It was a sign of uh, acceptance, right? That Jews and America made it and, and we were equal. And so our synagogues would be just as large as the churches and the uh, architecture and aesthetics mirrored those same buildings. Uh, we were equal and it was a sign of our success. Um, but as a result, um, the- And I, I'll say this, you know, my my synagogue, Temple Beth Ellen Richmond, uh, was, uh, was built in, in the early 1940s. Um, and it looks- uh, both inside and out, really, in a lot of ways, pretty indistinguishable from the Protestant churches in our neighborhood that were built around the same time. Uh, I, I suspect that that's in some ways true uh, uh, for for more you know suburban synagogues like like yours, Jesse. They may not look like the Protestant churches around you, but the fact that that like the, the the thinking behind the design and where they are situated um, probably reflects. Um, a, a sense of the um, atmosphere of the area, right? The, like we we made it to the suburbs too, right? And um, but now, um, I think generations later, uh, Jews, especially millennials, Gen Z, like aren't concerned with that, right? So that they're not concerned with feeling like the Jews have quote unquote made it. Um, they're concerned with finding meaning and purpose in life. And I would say that's not unique to, to Jews in America, that that's so many of us uh, when the world is so dark and disturbing. Um, but uh, it's hard to um, feel like you're finding purpose and spiritual meaning when um, the goal maybe 75 years ago, 100 years ago was to fit in. Um that that was how we made it. Now we want to stand out. Uh, and that's really where we go come full circle to the idea of uh, being countercultural and being different. And where, um, you know, I think the independent minion name uh, and spiritual communities were most successful originally was they weren't concerned with big buildings or any buildings at all, because spirituality was not about the buildings. And I would say, are, are we, uh, we have a beautiful building, a beautiful sanctuary, uh, 
you, Mike, know this as well. Any uh, uh, clergy person or board member knows that synagogues, uh, it takes a lot of money to maintain our buildings. Um, but these independent minyanim, we're saying that it's not about the buildings, it's about the people within the buildings. Um, and that's where they focus their time and energy before anything else. And the, and the quality of the experience, right? The message, um, you know, the, the why uh, was, was so crucial and, and so important and, and often lost because, you know, the institutions with their, with their edifices, you know, became uh, much more um, dependent on the, that infrastructure, and and really, in a lot of ways, served the infrastructure, whether the uh, rather than the infrastructure serving the the kind of spiritual ends. But the the flip side of it, Jesse, is I think also uh, worth mentioning, right? So in talking about the Sex Pistols, you know, their motto is you know, get pissed, destroy, right? Uh, in their iconic song, Anarchy in the UK. You know, they sing, um, don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. So, you know, there, there's there's this rebelliousness to punk rock, but without a clear sense of what the productive end is, right? So they want to destroy the status quo. And then, but when you ask, okay, and replace it with what? That question becomes, you know, the answer to that question becomes a lot more murky. And so, you know, I find that a lot in, uh, in, in the you know, kind of spiritual or religious landscape in America today, and in particular among Jews, there is a rejection of, you know, the, the dominant forms of religion that were practiced by our parents' generation uh, and our grandparents' generation, the, the kind of form and structure uh, and institutions that, that represent it. Uh, and so there, there's a rejection of that without a clear sense of, okay, I, I can reject that. That's fine. But Abraham didn't just reject his father's religion. Abraham went towards something new, right? Ella to the land that I will, will show you, the Agadlah, you know, the Agadlah Shemecha, right? And God will make, uh, says, I'll make your name great. So I'll make of you a great nation, right? There's a purpose um, to where Abraham is going in leaving from his father's his yeah his, but but he didn't know where he was going right he was willing he 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 did something that none of us are willing to do anymore he was willing to go on a journey without knowing where the destination was and that's what made it so powerful I, I agree with that I agree with that it does make it really powerful but he did know that there was a destination. Right. He knew that he was going towards something. He just didn't know exactly what. And I find that in our in the spiritual landscape, the sort of countercultural spiritual landscape that, that we're living in today, there's a lot of rejection without direction. Right. Without, you know, people say, I, you know, I, I reject religion. I reject God. I, you know, I, I can be spiritual without being religious. And I and I grant that that has truth to it. I, I also recognize that I can be spiritual without religious, without religion. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I find that, uh, that without a clear sense of, you know, how I am going to cultivate my spirituality, how I'm going to express my spirituality, um, how I'm going to nurture it, how I'm going to pass it on to, uh, to, to, to my children. Um, how I'm going to relate to other people and understand where they're spiritually coming from too, 
you need um, some kind of form. You need some kind of structure in order to accomplish that. So it's so th there's a lot of rejection, I think, going on um, without a lot of replacement, without a lot of building. Um, and you know, and I think that uh, that that um, that. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, sound like, you know, one of the people says, you know, the, 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 you know, the problem with America today is, you know, everybody's atheist now, right? I don't think that that's true. Um, but I do think the the outright rejection of, you know, the forms of religion, um, without kind of understanding their utility and their power, um, uh, does produce, I think, a sort of disaffection and alienation, maybe even a nihilism, a cynicism that is, in the aggregate, not very healthy. Sure. Um, Mike, I'm wondering about punk rock too. You know, I, I think that you know, eventually, I, um, you know, I didn't stop identifying with punk rock music in in some ways, shapes, or forms. I think that there's, you know, very much even about my religious spirit that is you know, deeply connected to the, um, to the, the message and method of, of punk rock. I just gave a sermon on Shavuot that says, you know, punk's not dead, it's Jewish. Uh, you can look at it on my blog for it if you want to take a look. Um, so I, I, I do identify with that, uh, but I also think that there's more to Judaism than that, right? Judaism isn't just countercultural. It also uh, offers a culture, uh, a, a cultural form that, you know that that we that we move toward in rejecting the status quo. Well, I also think, right, at a certain point, we we we, we can't be countercultural anymore, uh, right? That that we grow up, um, right? That that we were fine being countercultural until we had kids, right? Until we we needed to put a down payment on a house and pay a mortgage. Uh, we bought that minivan, that 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 sort of thing. Um, and I think uh, for these countercultural institutions, the, the same is true, right? You said it about Ikar, not in a bad way, but like it, call, it doesn't call itself a shul, but it is essentially a shul. I remember when Kehilat Hadar said, we're, we're just a tefillah space, right? We're a, a prayer community. And then what happened? All those young Jews on the Upper West Side had babies. And all of a sudden they're like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do uh, a Simchat Bat, uh, but but we're not doing life cycle events. And then 13 years later, they're like, all right, we'll do B'nai Mitzvah, right. uh, you know, but that's it. And you you become a, a synagogue, uh, which is not a bad thing, uh, right? It's, it's, it's what we should all want, that um, our, we are spiritual communities from, from um, birth until death. Um, that, that's what it should be. Um, but I think still too often, People don't see spiritual communities in that way. And so they are disenfranchised from their synagogues. I think we need to continue to do the necessary and important work to say, you don't have to be countercultural to find connection. We just have to do what, not to toot our own horns, but do what we're trying to do and, and find meaning in, in what we're doing. Yeah. And, and to, and to, you know, create something distinct, something new and build community, you know, through that new thing, right? So that, I think that that you see that in Pistol uh, as well. Right? All of these, you know, alienated and disaffected British kids 
start gravitating to the pistols and are in their orbit, are wearing, you know, the same, are adopting the same look, are going to their shows, are going to the parties. Like they create a, a community uh, centered around that music and that philosophy, uh, that, you know, that, that look. They create a community with a culture, with norms, with practices um, uh, that, you know, that eventually, you know, their kids are going to come to reject too, right? And, uh, and so, you know, you have, you know, the sort of like post-punk new wave era of the 80s, which are in a lot of ways, you know, the, the, uh, the 90s, you know, the, the kids who, you know, rejected their, uh, the, their, the music of their parents' generation, which were bands like Sex Pistols and the Ramones and, and things like that, right? So, you know, so, so that pendulum also swings, um, you know, each generation comes and, needs to strike out in their own way. So what, what are the, the, the takeaways then for, for this generation uh, of Jews, um, for the current Jewish leaders, for the future Jewish leaders, um, as we seek to build meaningful Jewish community? So I, I think that, you know, the message, if, if, we're, if we're taking, you know, a lesson from Pistol uh, and from the Sex Pistols, I, I, I do think that you know, standing at something a remove from the dominant culture, and that includes the dominant Jewish culture, you know, looking at it with a critical eye um, and not wholeheartedly embracing it um, because it's there and you're supposed to is important. I think that, that you know, the, our institutions, our culture, our practices, you know, all ought to be interrogated and, and investigated, looked upon with, with skepticism um, to see, you know, are they actually achieving the ends that they were created in the first place to achieve? And if not, can they be reformed? And if not, should they be blown up and replaced? Um, I, I do think that, that, that we should do that. I think that the critical aspect of it, though, is, is to recognize that they ought to be replaced with something and not just rejected. So I think that there is a, a way in which Jews are called to be uh, outsiders and to be rebels, um, but we also, you know, should be insiders in some way, too, that that if you, you know, only stand at a remove, um, you, you, uh, you you have nothing to hold on to, right? If you are only inside, um, then you know then then you uh, then then you can be you allow yourself to be oppressed and maybe to oppress others. So you need to be able to have both, right? To be to be able to look from the outside and also to embrace like an insider. I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think that that's sort of spot on. Right, that um, I'm all about uh, countercultural, but it, it's not that something is different and distinct. It, it's it's the way society evolves, right? I, I've said this before. It's the blockbuster analogy uh, and the the Netflix analogy that Netflix was offering the same content as blockbuster, just better originally, right? It was a way that you didn't have to go to the store. They'd bring the stuff to your homes. Uh, and then they offered a way to stream online at your convenience. And then they offer the algorithm to recommend what may be good for you. And then they developed their own original content. Um, but the tour was the same. And so what we're trying to do, right? Society in 2022 is different. Uh, I see this with Jewish camps. I see this, especially with Jewish youth groups and the struggle that USY is having uh, a, a youth group that is very near and dear to, to both of our hearts as we both served on international board and staff for so many years uh, as adults. Um, 
that USY is realizing, all right, teens connect differently now, not just because of COVID, but even before COVID than they did two decades ago. So how USY runs to try to connect Jewish teens needs to look different and be different. Uh, communities are, are the same way. We, we need to uh, understand that that disruptive innovation um, is a part of society. And it's not just about being countercultural. It's about how do we meet people where they are and understand that where they were a decade ago or a generation ago is not where they're going to be. We can't wait for them to come to us. We need to meet them where they are and bring them with us along the way. Right. And I think that, that there, you know, uh, there is a, I think a, a good lesson to be learned from pistol, you know, the, the, the sex pistols, you know, with their rebellious uh, ethos um, imploded pretty quickly. You know, they, 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 created one great album they they started a movement or or at least you know contributed to the the starting of a movement and and then they blew they blew themselves up right so that's the danger of um of, of being you know too immersed in the countercultural spirit um of of being you know too uh, of embracing too much that posture of rebellion, you end up rebelling against yourself too and, and, and disintegrating. So that is, uh, I think, a challenge for, uh, for, for, you know, for the American Jewish community, the, this, the, those who are stakeholders in the institutional world. You know, um, are, are you thinking enough about uh, how to break away from the status quo because the status quo isn't working for a lot of people, uh, but also how do you um, preserve enough of what is good about the status quo right. so that everything doesn't just fall apart. Right. Well, with that in mind, um, let us know what, what you think of, of pistol and uh, anarchy in, in the, uh, I was going to say anarchy in the UK, but, uh, but I think that that is, that, 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 that may be a little uh, come off as anti-Semitic when it's not intended. Anarchy in, in the, the Jewish community, what can we do to uh, understand that Judaism is countercultural and that is the norm and we should embrace that um, and never settle for what uh, Jewish community is, uh, but always strive uh, to, to create and cultivate a uh, Jewish community that is uh, most importantly authentic and real and genuine. Well, until next time, I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. I get pissed, destroy. I'd also quote a Sex Pistols uh, uh, lyric, but I don't know any. So I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone. <laughs>